Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. Series 2, Episode 3, The Prince and the Greek. If you enjoy poetry, and you haven't already, treat yourself to some Sanskrit love poems. I learnt a short one once, mostly to make my wife giggle, and it goes something like this. The tender word she spoke so sweet last night, when in his arms she lay, she hears a parrot now repeat and blushes at the break of day. Some people think that this sort of Sanskrit poetry is a bit overdone, a bit too much like a greetings card. Other people think that being snobbish about this sort of Sanskrit poetry is valuing cleverness over truth. I leave you to decide I am, of course, entirely impartial. But one thing is clear. None of that snobbish nonsense can possibly apply to the poet we'll be talking about today. Because today we'll be learning about a poem of the inimitable Kalidasa, the great Sanskrit poet of the Gupta era. His work is as wise as it's clever and more besides. It's absolutely brilliant. One of Kalidasa's most unusual poems is about events during the reign of King Pushyamitra. The story focuses on his son, Agnimitra. Agnimitra means something like friend of fire. And the poem tells the story of Agnimitra's uh, youth and, and his love before he came into power, before he became king. So here's the plan for this podcast. We're going to start with the story of Prince Agnimitra and his young love. This takes us up to the fateful moment when the Greek king of Buddhist legend destroys his home city, kills his father, and makes him king. And after that, we'll follow the fate of the prince and his house, and the fate of the Greek and his house, and see how they both deteriorate. Here we go. The events of Kalidasa's poem start with the murder of the last of the Mauryan emperors. Two great powers tried to step into the throne that he had left empty, step into that power vacuum. The first was General Pushramitra, the man who had killed the emperor. The second was the emperor's minister, whose name doesn't really matter much for now. And that's because General Pushramitra I took the throne and ruled Magda from Pataliputra. The minister fled to the south, and we'll hear from him in a bit. So General Pushyamitra, now King Pushyamitra, sends his son Agnimitra south. Because like pretty much every king of Magda before him, Pushyamitra wants to train up his son to rule a kingdom, and to do so he sends him to be viceroy. And the place that he sends him to be viceroy is Vidisha. Vidisha is a city we're going to hear a lot more about in the following podcasts. All we need to know for now is that it's in the south of the kingdom, in modern-day Madhya Pradesh. Being viceroy in Vidisha must have been tough training for the young prince. Vidisha was a tough place to watch over. And that's because uh, the emperor's minister, the one who had failed to get the throne uh, when, when the Mauryan emperor had been murdered, had fled to the south and set up his own kingdom there, with his own brother-in-law on the throne. 
So Agni Mitra is in Vidisha, and right there on the fringes of the city was this enemy kingdom, this natural enemy, ready to attack on any pretext. Everything was coiled up and ready to spring for war. And pretty soon after the prince arrives, war begins. A defector from the other kingdom to the south gets arrested on his way to Agnimitra and a war is started. Agnimitra sends off his army to go and beat the minister's army. But it wasn't just that Vidisha was a tough place to rule over. It was also a great place of opportunity. And that's because the kingdom set up by the minister was weak. It was, we are told, like a newly planted tree. It hadn't taken root and it might easily be torn down. So Agnimitra is going to win the war and bring this rival kingdom back to heel. But all of this is actually just the backdrop to Kalidasa's poem about the young prince. The story Kalidasa tells really starts when the prince and his queen go to their painting gallery to see a new picture. They're sitting down looking at the picture and the prince asks his queen, who's that lovely woman there? The servant attending you in the picture. I haven't seen that, that woman about. She's really beautiful. The queen is, understandably, not very impressed by this question and doesn't bother to respond. But Prince Agnimitra is captivated. He must see this woman. He must meet her. Now, the prince had a Brahmin advisor and a childhood friend who was a bit of a trickster. His name was Gautam. So, Gautam... Uh, on command of the king, conspires to find a way to get this beautiful servant girl in front of the king, to get them to meet up. The servant girl's name was Malavika. She'd got a slightly odd backstory. She'd been sent by the queen's brother from a neighbouring kingdom. It's all a bit mysterious, but everything will become clear later on. Anyway, the king asked Gautam to arrange a meeting between him and Malavika, the servant girl, Shortly after that, the two great teachers of dance and of drama get into a fight. Each has insulted the other. It's not clear who started it. So they go to Prince Agnimitra and they ask him to decide who's greater, who's been insulted here and who's the better one. So the prince, together with his queen, uh, say, well, come and, and let us watch you perform. In fact, let us see your students perform, right. you know, to check who is the better teacher amongst you. Well, surprise, surprise, who should be the student of the drama teacher but the young woman from the painting, Malavika herself? Of course, this is all Gautam's doing. And the king, on seeing the reality, on seeing the girl in the flesh that he had only seen in the painting, is just all the more impressed. And there are various other stumbling meetings between Prince Agnimitra and the servant Malavika. And everyone can see that Agnimitra has got the hots for Malavika big time, including the Queen. And the Queen, somewhat understandably, starts to feel neglected. Especially since this Malavika is nothing but her servant girl. So she imprisons Malavika. As Kalidasa puts it, Malavika and friend with fetters on them are enjoying a residence in the infernal regions where a ray of sun is never seen like two snake maidens. Well, when the trickster Gautam finds out, he hatches a plot to get her out. 
He fakes a snake bite with two puncture marks and all, and he bursts into the palace wailing and shaking in pain. Even better, the queen herself is there, and he decides to lay the guilt on thick. He claims he was in the pleasure garden on an errand for her when he was bitten by a snake. Now she's got a Brahmin's life on her hands. That's a serious deal in ancient India. There's a lovely moment, actually, when the prince plays along, telling Gautam, oh, don't, don't worry about it, stop making such a fuss. And the queen takes the bait and berates her husband. The poor creature, support him, support him. So the royal physician sent for. And there's some good news. There is a cure. What you need is to find a snake stone, which seems to be just a stone carved with an image of a snake. And take the snake stone and put it on a pitcher of water. And there's more good news. The queen's royal seal, the one which she uses to command uh, authority and make her obey. The royal seal just happens to be a snake stone. So, still racked with guilt and worry about the Brahmin's life, the queen eagerly gives up the snake stone when she's asked for it. And her royal seal is, of course, promptly taken and used to free her servant, Malavika. Well, the farce goes on for a while, and some time later, everyone's getting ready for the wedding between the prince and the servant girl. And the kingdom of next door sends some singers as a gift for the wedding. The singers come before the king, and the king goes, oh, that's nice. Go over and see my bride-to-be, and uh, she can decide who she wants to sing with. So these two people who have been sent from the, the neighbouring kingdom, go to see the, 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 the servant girl Malavika. And then they fall onto their knees and bow before him, crying, my princess, because the servant girl has all along been of royal birth. Eventually, even the old queen finally comes around, saying, so she's a princess. I have in fact been defining sandalwood by using it as a slipper. It's quite a revealing fact, I think, that Kalidasa makes her uh, of royal birth at the end. It can't just be a sort of straight rags-to-riches story. So they get married, but the story actually isn't happily ever after. Because after the wedding, there are some announcements. The first concerns that rival kingdom to the south. They've been beaten by Agnimitra's army. And Agnimitra decides to split up the kingdom, leaving the old king in power of some of the area, and his cousin in power of some of the rest of the area. And that works out well. All is going fine. They're just busy getting on being decent neighbours. The second bit of news received after the wedding also seems happy on the surface. It's a note from King Pushyamitra, Agnimitra's father. He was performing the horse sacrifice. Remember, we talked about that in episode one. And the horse had strayed into Greek territory and the Greeks had been, had been keeping it. Right, The Greek cavalry had detained the horse. But the king's warriors had freed it. And now it was back in the capital, Pataliputra. And it was time to sacrifice the horse and undergo that great ritual. And the prince and his queens were invited to go there for the great sacrifice. But as listeners of last week's podcast will know, the Greeks will be back. Knocking at the door of Pataliputra. More than knocking, in fact. The wood and mud walls of Pataliputra will be crumbled down, and King Pushramitra will be killed, and Prince Agnimitra will become king. 
The Greek who broke down the walls was King Melinda, the Buddhist Greek. He would soon be turning back from Pataliputra, returning to his kingdom in northwest India. His conquering of Pataliputra was the very peak of his power. From here on out, it was all downhill for the Greek and his kingdom, and in fact, all the Indo-Greek kingdoms. But it was also all downhill for the prince and the Shunga dynasty too. For the rest of this episode, what we're going to be doing is charting those two downhill slopes, the fall of the Indo-Greeks and the fall of the Shungas. We'll start with the Indo-Greeks. Three Greek dynasties fought one another in India. The first I called the Two Brothers. They were founded by Thucydemus, the plucky king of independent Bactria who stood against the might of the Seleucids in a siege lasting two years. We heard all about him in an earlier podcast. And by the time Melinda was a young man, two of Euthydemus's grandchildren ruled in northwest India together. They controlled, amongst other things, the great university town of Takshila. These guys were patrons of Brahminical orthodoxy. The Greek god Neptune featured on their coins. Uh, Neptune's got a trident, and it probably resembled the god Shiva, but they also have other gods and goddesses, uh, which are purely Greek. They've got Lakshmi on one of their coins. Sorry, purely Indian. So the first dynasty are the two brothers. The second dynasty I called the Old Kings. And I'm trying to work out why I called them that. They weren't the oldest of the dynasties. They were founded by a guy who nicknamed himself God. Which is a little bit egotistical. But it's fitting a little bit. If only in the fact that we've got no idea where on earth he came from. This was the dynasty of Demetrius II, who made the first great inroads into India amongst the Greeks. This was also the dynasty of uh, Melinda, or Menander as he called himself, the great Greek patron of Buddhism. So let's call this the Greek Buddhist dynasty. Then there was the third dynasty, the usurpers. These were founded by Eucratides and his band of guerrilla warriors in the mountains around Bactria, making raids into the walled cities of Bactria and finally gaining control of it. And they were a huge threat to the established Indo-Greek kings. In the face of this threat of the, by the usurpers, Menander had united the other two dynasties, the two brothers and the Buddhist dynasty. He had married the daughter of one of the two brothers. For the record... That brother was called Agathocles, so naturally enough, his daughter's name was Agatholokia. So Menander has now united the Greeks ruling in India. And for 30 wonderful golden years, he rules. And he rules from his capital city called Sagala. He rules with 500 councillors. The 500 councillors would have been Greeks by culture and language, though actually many would have been from Turkey or they would have been Hellenised Iranians. And his council sits in Sagala, his capital city, and they send out commands to his sub-kings, who are his younger brothers, and to the governors of the districts, local Indian nobles and Greeks. Sagala was the centre of an awful lot of power in northwest India. 
and it lived up to its powerful place in the world in style. The Buddhist texts describe it in glowing terms. Here's what the questions of Melinda say. There is in the country of the Greeks a great centre of trade, a city that is called Sagala. Situated in a delightful country, well-watered and hilly, abounding in parks and gardens, and groves and lakes and tanks, a paradise of rivers and mountains and woods. Wise architects have laid it out, and its people know of no oppression. Since all their enemies and adversaries have been put down, brave is its defence, with many and various strong towers and ramparts, with superb gates and entrance archways, and with the royal citadel in its midst, white-walled and deeply moated. Well laid out are its streets, squares, crossroads and marketplaces. Well displayed are the innumerable sorts of costly merchandise with which its shops are filled. It is richly adorned with hundreds of almshouses of various kinds, and splendid with hundreds of thousands of magnificent mansions which rise aloft like the mountain peaks of the Himalayas. Its streets are filled with elephants, horses, carriages and foot passengers, frequented by groups of handsome men and beautiful women, and crowded by men of all sorts of conditions, Brahmins, nobles, artificers and servants. They resound with cries of welcome to the teachers of every creed, and the city is the resort of the leading men of each of the different sects. Shops are there for the sale of Benares muslin, of Kutumbra stuffs, and of other cloths of various kinds, and sweet odours are exhaled from the bazaars, where all sorts of flowers and perfumes are tastefully set out. Jewels there are in plenty, such as men's hearts desire, and guilds of traders in all sorts of finery display their goods in the bazaars that face all quarters of the sky. So this capital city has trade as its centre. Those guilds that we heard about in an earlier special episode they're all over the city and bringing uh, loads of wealth into it. And also it's a very cosmopolitan place. We've got the leaders and the teachers from the various different sects. Elsewhere, the Buddhist texts say that Buddhist monks lighted up the city with their yellow robes like lamps. And they were joined by Greeks, Kshatriyas, Brahmins and householders. Sound like quite a place. You just want to go straight out and spend some time in the ruins, seeing what it was like, standing in the place where those monks walk who lit up the city with their yellow robes. The difficulty is that we don't know precisely where it is. It's a bit of an archaeological mystery. Or rather, exactly where it is depends on who you ask. According to some people, if you want to stand where Melinda stood, you should go to Sirkup. Sirkup is a collection of ruins that have been uh, unearthed just south of Taxila. And that sounds plausible enough. This looks on the face of it like it might be the great capital of Melinda. We talked in an earlier podcast about its central main street and its regular side streets. This is a new Greek city built according to Greek design and it's in Melinda's kingdom. The trouble is that it's in the wrong place in Melinda's kingdom. doesn't fit the description at all of the Buddhist texts. It's also really rather a small city. It's not like the centre of trade that Sagala was supposed to be. Not at this time, anyway. 
So where is the great city? Where can I go to stand where Melinda stood? Well, Wikipedia, in its infinite wisdom, solves the archaeological mystery for us. It declares that the great capital of Sagala was Sialkot. Sialkot's a city that's still around and it's in modern-day Pakistan. In the Punjab, the trouble is that Sialkot is on the plains, while Sagala is up in the hills. And what's more, there are simply no ruins of the right time at all at Sialkot, and there aren't any coins of Melinda either. I mean, you'd expect to find loads of his coins in his capital, his huge city of trade. So where can I go to stand where Melinda stood? Where can I go to find his great capital? Some people say it's up in the Swat Valley, way to the north. There are plenty of coins of Melinda here. Loads, in fact, huge hordes of them. But this puts the city of trade too far off the beaten track and too close to the other great city of Melinda's lands, Alexandria of the Caucasus. So probably the great city of Melinda, with its hundreds of thousands of houses towering like the peaks of the Himalayas, lies undiscovered. The towers, the ramparts, the streets where monks with shining robes walk past. Now just some nameless mounds in the foothills of the Punjab. Their secrets waiting to be dug up. And that's quite thrilling. Well, we heard about how Menanda reigned for 30 golden years and how he was venerated at his death. The different cities took the ashes and... Uh, fought over them about who would have them and eventually decided that each would take an equal share and each took part of Melinda's ashes back to their city and built a stupa and put them in, much like had happened with the Buddha. Melinda, during his lifetime, had united the dynasty of the two brothers and the dynasty of the Buddhist Greeks in the face of the threat of the usurpers. But after Melinda's death, the two dynasties started to pull apart. His wife, the daughter of one of the two brothers, took control. Melinda had a son, but Melinda's son was far too young, so his wife rules as regent, and she really has the power. She even issues coins in her own name. Now, Manana's wife, remember, had come from the two brothers dynasty, had been the daughter of one of the two brothers. And that's still where her heart lies, with the two brothers. She shuns the symbols of her husband in her husband's dynasty and returns to the symbols of the two brothers dynasty. She puts relatives from her side of the family, the two brothers dynasty, into the positions of power. You get the impression that Melinda's side of the family is being kind of pushed out by his wife. Meanwhile, in another corner of his kingdom, Melinda's brother is causing trouble. Perhaps disgusted at his wife's wiping out of history, his brother revolts and takes a region for himself and for his son. To cut a long story short, pretty soon after Melinda uh, has died, the Greeks of India are split into their two dynasties again, fighting tooth and nail. And this, of course, gave the perfect opportunity for the third Greek dynasty to get a peek in, the usurpers. The usurpers had a sudden pressing need to get out of Bactria. They were being invaded, and they had nowhere to go except for India. So they invaded the land of the other two dynasties repeatedly. By turns, they had great success, and they were slaughtered, sometimes reduced to just a collection of warriors hiding in valleys away from the beaten track. But they kept at it, and soon enough, 
Menanda's young son grew up. And Menanda, Menanda's by the, the same person as Melinda, by the way. Menanda's wife had to give up control of the kingdom to her son. That was bad news for the Buddhist Greek dynasty and good news for the usurpers because Melinda's son had none of Melinda's grit and cunning. Melinda's son simply melted away in the face of the usurpers, retreating to the north. So the usurpers established a kingdom in India and to make matters even worse, Melinda's son not only allowed himself to be defeated by outsiders, he was also defeated by insiders. His own younger brother took most of the kingdom from him, dividing the kingdom again. We could go on naming different characters and their wars, but you get the picture. There are a rumbling series of stupid wars between the different dynasties. Each war diminished the treasury and diminished the soldiers of that dynasty. Great kings were replaced by lesser kings, with increasingly little at their command. Until finally, the Indo-Greek territories were nothing but a patchwork of petty and presumably quite bitter little warlords. In the words of a later Chinese ambassador to the area, the Greeks of the region became bereft of central power, with numerous local chieftains and little armies of poor military value. The Greek kings of India were gone, never to return. The Greeks of India themselves, though, they weren't gone. They were still there, though they were now a tiny and politically powerless minority. Their culture lived on, though they increasingly took on Indian culture and Indian religion too, primarily Buddhism and Brahminical orthodoxy. In fact, even though the Greek kings were gone, Greeks still appeared on the coins of the local Indian rulers. Greek almost certainly remained the language of government, the language of merchants, the language of power. And it lasted really quite a long time. 150 years later, after the Greek kings, a Greek philosopher travelled through the area and he left a report which we now know to be reliable in at least quite a lot of its details. And he says that he could get by just speaking Greek all the way to Taxila. And that there he met an Indian king who kept up the Greek sports of javelin and discus and was very proud of his Greek cultural ability. It took until around 200 AD for the Greek population to be finally be indistinguishable from their neighbours. Not gone, but absorbed. So much for the downfall of the Greek and his kin. What about the fate of our prince Agnimitra, the heartthrob? After all, he's now in charge of Pataliputra, the city we're focusing on in these podcasts. The sad truth is that we know far less about his fate than we know about the fate of Melinda and the Greeks. The Puranas are ancient Hindu texts that have lists of kings, and they list ten Shunga kings. Most of them we know nothing more about. We only know that they're on the list. We don't even have any of their coins, no inscriptions, no other mentions, nothing. I'm not going to name all of them or even talk about all of them, just so as not to burden you. But here are the greatest hits. Shunga king number one, 
is Pushyamitra, of course, which means something like friend of stars. He was the assassin of emperors. We know about him. Shunga king number two was Agnimitra, friend of fire, prince of poetry. We know about him. Shunga king number three was the one who is supposed to have uh, saved the horse, the soon-to-be-sacrificed horse, when he was detained by the Greeks. Sometime around Shunga king number three, Pataliputra's power was drained almost entirely. Perhaps the Greeks burnt it down when they conquered it. The capital of Magda is moved to Vidisha, the city where Agnimitra spent his youth as viceroy and had that weird love triangle thing. The Shungas continued to be an important power in the new capital and continued to keep in touch with their old enemies, the Indo-Greeks. They even exchanged ambassadors with the two brothers dynasty and it all seemed quite friendly. Things go on for a while until we get to Shunga king number 10, the last of the Shungas. He was called Devabuti, which means something like power of God. He had a reputation to put a delicate matter dustily of being over libidinous. And he had a slave woman and the slave woman naturally enough had a daughter. Well, the slave woman's daughter one day dressed up in the clothes of the queen and in the dark of the night went to the king's bedside and murdered him. The minister who had arranged this assassination took charge and founded a new dynasty on the ashes of the old one. And that was it, more or less. The dynasty of the Shungas ended much as it had begun, with an assassination orchestrated by a close advisor. The whole dynasty had ruled for only a couple of decades less than the Mauryan Empire, but it left not nearly as much for the latter historian to chew on. Ah, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Before the Shungas meet their final demise, the people of Pataliputra will face even more invaders. This time they will come not from the northwest, but from the east. And that's a story for the next podcast. Every week, we read something from the original primary sources. And this week we've really got to read something from Kalidasa's poem about the prince, his queen, and the servant girl. When we join them, the queen has caught the king and the servant girl having a secret little tryst in the garden. Understandably, the queen's pretty upset. Let's listen in on their conversation. The queen says... Oh, the faithlessness of men. I indeed relying upon your deceitful speech, king. Unsuspicious like the deer that is attracted by the whistle of the hunter. Didn't anticipate this. Gautam, the, the fool, the jester, takes the king aside and whispers in his ear. Make some defence at once. Being a burglar caught in the act, you ought to say that you came here as a student of the art of digging a mine. You ought to pretend that you're just practising. So the king says to the queen, Beautiful one, I had no object with Malavika. Because you delayed, I amused myself as well as I could. Queen, you are to be depended on, are you not? I did not know that my husband had obtained such an agreeable means of passing the time. Otherwise I, unhappy that I am, 
would never have interrupted. Gautam again says, Do not repel by your speeches the courtesy of the king. If mere conversation with the attendants of our royal mistress, when met by chance, is to be considered a crime, why, of course, you know, you know best, and we must acquiesce. Well, conversation let it be called. How long am I to torch myself about nothing? And the queen storms off. But the king pursues her, saying, forgive me. And the queen has a girdle tangled up around her feet, so she's walking quite slowly. And the king says, beautiful one, neglect of your devoted admirer is not becoming. Traitor, says the queen, your heart is not to be relied on. The king, with the word traitor, O oh dear one, you let your scorn of me, who is so familiar with you, come to an end. You do not dismiss your anger, even though entreated by your own girdle, lying prostrate at your feet. <laughs> even this cursed girdle sides with you. The queen picks up the girdle and endeavours to strike the king with it. The king, this lady in a passion, raining tears, prepares to strike me, terrible criminal that I am, with the cord of her golden girdle fallen unexpectedly from her bimber-like hips, as a row of thunderclouds to strike the Vindhya mountain with a streak of lightning. The queen, why do you drive me into transgression again, raising her hand with the girdle in it? The king, why do you withdraw the scourge lifted against me, the malefactor, O curly-haired one? You increase your fascinations, and still you are angry with your slave here, me. Surely at this time I am permitted to prostrate myself, and he falls face down at her feet. These indeed are not the feet of Malavika, says the queen, that will gratify your longing for caress. And she storms off with her attendant. Along comes the king's friend, Gautam, and he says, come, rise up, rise up. You have found favour. The king rises up and looks around, and he doesn't see his queen. What? Is the dear one really gone? Yeah, I'm glad to say she is gone without forgiving this impropriety. Therefore, let us flee rapidly before she returns like the god of war. The king. Oh, the inconsistency of love. Now that my mind is taken captive by my beloved Malavika, I consider the queen's rejection of my humble supplication a veritable service. For because she's angry, I can neglect her, though she's attached to me. And then they walk off, the king's conscience appeased, and happy to pursue his servant girl. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. There's a lot more about life in the Indo-Greek world in particular that I've missed out on. I haven't even touched on the ambassador and his inscription yet. So I'm going to make that a special episode on life in the Indo-Greek kingdoms coming soon. It's also worth noting that really quite a lot of Greek history is very uncertain. A large chunk of the story I told depends merely on where we found coins, which is pretty slender evidence for such a rich narrative. Probably there's no historian in the world who would agree with all of the stories I told it here, and every single part of the story would be disputed by some historian or other. But the story I told is my best guess at what happened. It remains nothing more than a best guess, and it would be astonishing if it was entirely true. That applies actually even more to the story of the Shungas. 
If you've been enjoying the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website, which is historyofindiapodcast.com. Thanks once again for listening. Take care.